leadership is so freaking hard. Mm. It's not something people are naturally good at. It's something people have very little training in. And if we can come to any leadership role we have as a service role, just like you were talking about, like, what can I give here and how can I serve the people who supposedly work for me? Mm-hmm. It's a, a game changer. Hello and welcome to Beyond Networking, the show where we help you build a sustainable career in an unpredictable world with the power of human connection. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and today's guest is Zoe Chance. Zoe is one of the world's foremost researchers and speakers on ethical influence and persuasion. She's a beloved Yale professor who teaches the most popular course at their school of management called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. And her new book is based on that course. It's called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. Zoe is also a dear friend and collaborator who helped me craft my now-famous TEDx talk back in 2015. And she's the first ever repeat guest on this podcast, having joined me way back in season one when this show was still called One New Person. And interestingly, that interview back in season one, it came at a time when Zoe was at the very crossroads that eventually led to this book. And that's where the conversation picks up. We spoke about doing what you love, how to write an academic book that feels conversational and friendly, and why this new book on influence had to change completely like she had to start over in response to COVID. Diving into the topics of the book itself, we focused largely on the power of framing as a tool of influence, which includes a discussion of mind readers, magicians, and gorillas. We also touched on how timing can be used to positively influence someone and offered some advice on how to stop turning people off by asking to pick their brain or buy them a cup of coffee. Like, please stop doing those things and listen to this to find out why. And finally, Zoe offers one critical piece of advice to young professionals trying to navigate this crazy, ever-changing world. I had the honor of reading Influences Your Superpower cover to cover as an advanced publisher's copy. And my one-sentence review is this. This book is Robert Cialdini for the kindness generation. Check the show notes to either pre-order or grab the book, depending on when you're listening to this. It's due out February 1st, 2022, and for all the ways to connect with Zoe. And now, my friend, Zoe Chance. My friend, Zoe, Zoe Chance, with a new book coming out, how are you? I'm great, Brian, and I'm so happy to get to talk with you about my book, having written the intro to your book and been so (laughs) excited about your book, too. So thank you for having me on. Uh, I'm so I'm I'm I have so many places that I want to go to and talk about this uh, this book. We're going to talk about your new book so much. But first, what's on your plate right now? Like, what are you working on this week? And this may be skewed because we're meeting like just before the holidays. But like, what are you doing right now? What I'm working on right now today is putting together a video called Book Bites that's for this giant book club that's called the Next Big Idea Club. And it's run by Adam Grant and Susan Cain and Malcolm Gladwell and Daniel Pink. And I've been a fan of all of them individually and their book club. So I'm on a very long list of nominees. I think there are 63 of them or something that they're choosing from for their winter book recommendation. Uh, but that's my project for today. Oh, that's great. They have such a cool that it's such I, I, I follow that whole um, the, the the book club that they do. And it's it's always so interesting, the books that people like that, that I look up to what they're reading and what they're interested in. Yeah, I'm excited about a bunch of these other books. Some of my other friends are on the list at the same time. And I just want to be friends with all of these people and read all of their books. (laughs) That's so funny. I I feel like the longer I've been in my career, the less I'm looking for new business and the more I'm looking for new friends. What you just said, I'm just like, I want to be friends with these people. Forget forget getting them on my podcast or asking for business or connections. I just want to just want to have coffee. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I I feel like I had a lot of reasons for writing this book, but 20% was just make the new friends that I want to make. Absolutely. Yeah. 
That's been that's been my favorite thing about running a running a podcast. And I'm in five seasons now. And, you know, I get people that ask me a lot about running a podcast and like, oh, do you do it because it brings business? And I'm like, yeah, sometimes it brings business. But mostly I just get to chat with all the coolest people that you would never be able to find time in their calendar for otherwise. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly why I'm considering following in your footsteps and hosting a podcast after this big book thing is died down a bit. Absolutely. Well. The last time you and I talked on my show, and by the way, you are the first repeat guest in five seasons of the show. So the yes, it's so exciting. So I can't ask you the same questions I ask everybody else because you've already answered those questions, uh, which is even even more interesting because if anybody hears us and then goes back and listens to that conversation we had in early 2019, you were in the early stages. You were working on this book, working towards this book already, but it was a completely different book, if I remember right, at that time. And you were in a very different headspace. Like, I, I don't know if we should start there. Like, I came to Yale into your, uh, we met at your office and we had this really quiet, intimate conversation about influence and your no, your month, your your no, your November, which is now in this book. It It was right at that time, but you, I don't want to say you were stressed, but you were not the same I'm high sure energy person. <laughs> you were stressed. You were, you were in a very difficult place, clearly. Um, can you talk me through what was kind of going on then and what's different now with the book and with your headspace? So don't take me back to the PTSD 2019 year where um, just very briefly, I don't know how much we talked about it in that conversation, but I was we in the didn't. process of changing my job where I was on the tenure track at Yale, got my dream job. This was my dream job that I had been working toward out of six years or however long it takes to get a PhD. You get your dream job. And then I was here at Yale for a few years and I was not loving the research and I was not thriving in the research and there was no way that I was going to continue on this path and get tenure and I I didn't even want to stay on that path but I was definitely afraid that I would be fired because that's what happens if you don't get tenure so the whole year of 2019 was this period of me coming to terms with myself and then also letting people know what I really love is impact what I really love is teaching. What I really love is writing, but not academic articles that, if you're lucky, will get read by a few hundred people. But and they take years to publish, and you face a lot of flack and mean people <laughs> during the review process. They're they're not mean people, but the process is very critical and negative. And the same thing about sharing research. It's just this weird discipline. And I wanted to be teaching, speaking, writing. And bringing the things that I knew and was excited about, about the science of how you can become someone people want to say yes to, excited about sharing that with the world. But I was in the transition period where it wasn't figured out yet. And now yeah. it's figured out. I have this new job. I was just telling Brian <laughs> earlier before this conversation that my office now is like five feet by five feet square. <laughs> and it's in the middle of a corridor and there are glass walls on both sides. So like I'm this Yale professor, but I'm basically in a tiny cubicle. <laughs> but then I have this seven weeks a year teaching job. I don't have high status in my role at Yale at all. And I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And I actually work really hard and come in most days, most weeks of the 47 weeks or 44 weeks that I'm not getting paid for yeah. because I love it. And I'm just, I'm essentially volunteering my time, but I have incredibly high engagement and enthusiasm. And when my colleagues see me at a meeting or I show up and teach something for free, they're like, Zoe's here. And <laughs> I get a lot of jollies and, and that shift of doing things because I love them has also allowed me to be very successful and financially thriving on the side as well. So it's not yeah. like I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good I mean, life. The, the the shift, the shift to impact. And this is where I was kind of coming in for this question is I remember at the beginning of you working towards eventually this book, 
you in some private conversations, but I hope is okay now. We you, you can were, talk you about were, anything. You were frustrated with the fact that the book was that you were starting to write was coming across as kind of academic or cold, and and mm. you you were expressing to me that you you the books that you loved that had worked for you that had changed your ideas about the world were never written like that. That they were written warm and conversational, um, and 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 that is what this book is. That it's. It's warm, it's personable, it's conversational, it doesn't feel academic, but it's like, you know, the back third is the sources, right? So it clearly is, it's one of those books, which is a book I could never write because I'm not an academic, where, the, where like where like half the book is sources, but it's not, it doesn't feel like that when you're reading it because it's it doesn't take you out of it. It's storytelling. So so what what was it like to to make that shift and and how were you able, I'm, I'm curious about the process of shifting away from the academic brain to how do, how do I influence people in a book about influence? Mm. The shift that happened in the book was a pandemic shift. So mm. I was working so hard and it wasn't just me working on this book. This I was working with a writing partner and with an editor that I'd hired myself and with a fantastic editor at Random House. So the writing partner that I hired was working full time for me with me on this project. And the editor ended up that I hired myself ended up on calls with us literally every single day during the lockdown of the pandemic. And I was trying to learn how to write a book. These two people had already written and edited many books, been super successful. And I I was producing maybe like the we were collectively producing the quantity of stuff that we were supposed to produce. And I thought we were three months from being done with the manuscript when the lockdown happened. Oh. And our editor at Random House said, let's give you another year. And when we got another year, Anne-Marie and Peter, my partners, and you've talked to Peter on the podcast, Peter. I love out. Peter. He's one of my favorite people. And I need to catch Me back too. up with Peter. <laughs> Me too. He's he's a just world-class so gifted and experienced editor who taught me how to be an author. Anne-Marie and Peter said, let's, along with me, let's restart the manuscript. Let's go back to square one and spend this next year making this book the best that we can possibly make it. And when the world changed completely and we all got the rug pulled out from under us and we were freaked out for so many different reasons, lots of people losing jobs and income, lots of people having just insane divides in their families. I had, it, I got to keep my job, but I lost all the speaking income that I had anticipated when I was changing my job. So, so my income did uh, cut in half. But then not only that, I, I got to have my sister, her husband, their one-month-old son, and their cat come and live with us for months during the <laughs> pandemic, which was beautiful, and it was completely insane. I get thrown into teaching virtually all of a sudden, and I teach a double low during those seven weeks. And mm. and there's just a, a crisis of empathy during this time of transition where there's so much anger, so much hope, protests that involve a lot of both. And the tone of the book, whatever I had been writing before the pandemic, wouldn't have been right during the mm -hmm. pandemic and in this post-pandemic time where it's it's really an apocalypse. An apocalypse is a restart. So there's a lot of, there's actually a, a positive frame around the idea of an apocalypse that doesn't get investigated very much. But this, I hope the tone of the book is much more deep and real and vulnerable and authentic and human than whatever it was that I was writing in 2019 when we talked. Yeah. So let, let's let's dive into the concepts there because you, you let us in perfectly because an apocalypse uh, can be reframed. And, and I there's I think there's you know, this this is where kind of like hashtag pivot, you know, started started happening. And, and the gif of Ross uh, from Friends started uh, going, I, I went back to see how early in the pandemic did I actually post that gift for the first time. And it was like March 4th. I was way ahead of the game. I was like a week ahead of everybody else. I was like, 
I saw this coming. I have proof on Facebook. Um, <laughs> cause you know how your memory changes things. Like you think you were smarter than you were when you think back, you know, and like, and then I went back on Facebook memories. I was like, Oh, oh no. A week before the official lockdowns, I posted pivot with that gift. And I said to all my friends in entertainment, that's what I had posted. So I was like, all right, at least oh I saw God. it coming. I was the opposite. And I was still going down to New York every week with my writer partner, collaborator, Anne Marie. And we were together at this cafe in New York on March 12th. And we were the only people working in the coffee shop. And we were like, what's wrong with everybody? And Anne-Marie was saying like, yeah, my, my friends were telling me I shouldn't come to this meeting with you. And I was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, what's wrong with you? And um, yeah, like what's wrong with them? They're crazy, these scared people. And I was supposed to meet with Dan Ariely that afternoon, who was my PhD mentor. And he was in New York as well. And I came down with a cold that afternoon before meeting with him. And then all of a sudden, it just hit me walking around the city. Nobody's around. And I have a cold. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I have COVID. And I'm going to give Dan Ariely COVID. And I called him and said, let's not meet. And uh, I went home on the train. And I basically never left my house again. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that so weird? It's like we're coming up on like two years two years later and I'm like, yeah, and I'm still doing this. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have pivoted so gracefully as at least as gracefully as anyone else I know on the planet. So it's been inspiring to follow your journey in that. Well, thank you for that. It never, it doesn't feel graceful, but I did, it did happen quickly. I had a, a, a I'm going to call it luck. And people get really nervous when you say luck because they they're very quick to tell you that, no, you're not lucky. You worked hard and you made good decisions. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did all those things, but I got lucky in a lot of ways. It was like every skill I'd ever randomly obtained over the course of a lifetime was perfectly positioned for a pivot to virtual in a pandemic, like already had a fully professionally treated home studio in my house in a separate room, already had run a YouTube channel for like 10 years, knew how to do video, have an audio engineering background formally. I speak for a living. I'd been coaching on Zoom. I'd been using Zoom for four years already. Like that was luck. I was perfectly. And then I made a couple of very good decisions very quickly that paid off. But like, yeah, I was I was well positioned um, to 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 do this. Thank you for that. I love that you acknowledge and appreciate that because every every successful person has worked hard, been talented, and gotten lucky. And that's it, it's a third of it yes, for yes, anybody yes. who's thriving. And it's it's easy to be the successful person that doesn't acknowledge the role of luck or to look at some successful person and not appreciate that luck absolutely was part of it. So Let's talk about the 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 framing, because you brought up the framing of the apocalypse and in your framing chapter and framing is so critical in your framing chapter. You also discuss a gorilla. Why are you talking about a gorilla and how can we reframe? (laughs) (laughs) So. Framing is the idea just to define framing, first of all. It's using language to create a frame of reference for someone that then influences what they expect and what they experience and then how they evaluate that experience. And it's one of the most concrete and simple essential tools of leadership. And you could think of framing as just giving something a name or using a sound bite. This is something that visionary leaders are so good at. It's not just having the vision, it's naming and describing the vision that brings people along. And the gorilla piece that I talk about is when you and I, in our, I think our first conversation ever. First yeah, one on the plane. On the plane. <laughs> yes. We, we talked about our mutual fandom of Darren Brown, who's a celebrity mentalist in the UK. And I, in the book I write about when I finally got to see, I guess maybe it was my second show watching him, but it was his US debut. And he's a big fan of behavioral science, just like you are. So he knows a lot about the research, like you do, even though you say that you don't, <laughs> but you totally do. And, and there's a very famous study that is described by people as the invisible gorilla study. In the original study, 
And oh God, should we explain to listeners? You know what? Um, yeah, we're gonna ruin it. This is a spoiler, but you can try it with your friends. You can try it with your friends. Here, Don't here's, tell them here's what, the what study we'll say. Is. So there is an if you've never if you've never heard of the gorilla study, you're about to have something spoiled for you. If you've heard of it, you already know what it is. And if you don't want it spoiled, there's a link in the show notes. Go watch it. It's like a two minute video, one minute video. Watch it and then come back and hit play. OK, go. Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Thank you. Thank you. And I just did that. I showed it to my husband a couple of weeks ago, by the way. His mind was blown. So good. <laughs> the frame of watching this video is there is a two teams of people bouncing a basketball. One is in white shirts. One is in black shirts. And you count the number of times that the players dressed in white pass the ball. And you're just watching the video counting. So you get to the end of the video. And if that's what you've been doing, if that's your frame, then you say it's 16, whatever. You share the number. However, if you watch the video again without that frame, what you see is in the middle of this one to two minute thing, a guy in a gorilla costume comes into the middle of the frame, beats his chest, and walks off the other side. There is nothing, <laughs> nothing invisible about this. It's not it's hidden. So clear. It's so obvious. It's not hidden. <laughs> so obvious. And so Darren Brown, who's obviously read this study, he shares in his show, I'm putting a banana on a table at the front of the stage. Everybody in the audience watch this banana. And at some point, a gorilla is going to come out and steal it. It's at the front of the stage. And I know the invisible gorilla study. So I'm like, I, I know what's going on. I'm totally going to see it. And of course, at some point in the show, he, he says, did anybody see the gorilla? And I, we look at the table and it's empty. And nobody has watched the gorilla because something else was going on. He, every second of the show, he's framing how and where we should be directing our attention. And and if you go and watch Darren's show, he actually does it again. And it's and you can't believe what the reveal is when the gorilla is. You think you're catching the gorilla and he again has misled you. Brian, I would love to know because your background and how we connected is you being a magician and mind reader in in your past doing so many shows and you're brilliant. And I brought you to Yale multiple times doing shows. I told oh, Ripley, my daughter, that we had this conversation. She's so excited. What, how are you using language to direct people's attention? And I, I love, <laughs> love magic magicians, mentalists, because specifically because they're so brilliant at directing attention. And you're one of those people. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And by the way, I, had the incredibly good fortune. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, surprised me for my birthday in 2019, which is in the summer, with tickets to see Darren doing his limited Broadway engagement um, uh, uh, secret uh, in December. And so it was one of the last real shows I saw before COVID. Uh, and we sat in literally the first, first row being familiar with his work, having studied his work and having seen him do the gorilla piece before in recordings of live shows, knowing it was coming and still <laughs> missing it is very upsetting. So funny. <laughs> and, and it tells That's you the power so of framing, funny. which is I knew it was coming. I knew the reveal was coming. I knew the secret. I knew the twist. And I still <laughs> miss it happening because when so the way that magicians use framing, a, a lot of it is there's a misconception about misdirection. So people think of misdirection, they think of hiding something. That is the amateur's way of doing misdirection and it's the way the average non-magician thinks of misdirection is I gotta hide something in my hand, I gotta make sure nobody sees it. When in reality, it's direction that you want, not misdirection. Because if you're hiding something, all of your energy is on the thing you're hiding and you're actually more likely to tip it off to somebody else because people can feel where the energy is. Instead, if you show them something else that's really interesting, you don't have to hide the thing at all. I used to go, my buddies and I as magicians, we used to play a game where we would watch one of us go up to another, like go up to perform for a random group at a restaurant or something. And we would do a fake transfer. We would pretend to put something in our hand and we put our hand up as if that's the thing with the hand in. 
But then we'd, we'd play a game to see, could I, with the hand that's actually hiding the thing, could I wave it around, obviously, <laughs> and still have nobody see it? And, and that's the power of framing is that if you give somebody something really interesting to engage with, you don't have to hide anything at all. There's no reason to. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. When I, I think that you recommended this book to me rather than vice versa by a couple of neuroscientists called Slights of Mind. Yes, it's magnificent. Right? It's so good. And these neuroscientists are amateur magicians and they're obsessed with magic and they have interviewed and studied and then broken down the neuroscience of sleight of hand. And I I was fascinated by this tiny factoid that what we can see in clear detail is only just the center of our visual field covering one-tenth of one percent of our retina. And everything else is blurry. Yeah. So when you're talking about it, you don't have to be hiding the thing, you just have to focus. That's exactly true because everything else is hidden. And we're just guessing at it. And our brain is taking in, this is an analogy for the way that our brain takes in information and the way we make decisions, that there is a very, very limited amount of conscious focused attention that we can pay to things. And then everything else is outside of our consciousness because we just don't have the mental bandwidth. So as an influencer, when you have the power to direct somebody's attention, that is tremendous, tremendous, tremendous power. And another thing that I talk about in the book is the power of timing. And when the lockdown happened, I reached out to Darren Brown to ask if he would be willing to show up for a Q&A for our class where we only ask for 15 minutes and we watch one of his shows on Netflix. It's called The Push. It's great. It's crazy. And because Darren Brown. Mm. Oh, my it, God. It's so good. So it's good. so good. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's so good. And we use that show to break down Defense Against the Dark Arts. So I have another chapter in the book called Defense Against the Dark Arts. And he is using every single one of these techniques. And we're watching the show to identify it. And because like all other performers, he was stuck in his house. He was like, sure, I can spend 15 minutes. And then he's so nice. He actually spent longer. While while he was on the Zoom call with us, he there's a, a dead body of a guy named Bernie. It's based on Weekend at Bernie's, if you know this movie. But there's a dead body that figures, is the central figure in the show of The Push. And he has the Bernie dummy behind him on the couch while we're having this call with him. It's oh so much God. fun. <laughs> that's that's so awesome. It's so outrageous. And I love the, um, the timing as a function of influence, too, because that was one of the things that I said to so many people last year during 2020 when they weren't. Um, when they were struggling to do anything and they were trying to come up with creative projects or find motivation, I said, listen, um, as far as podcasts go, if you're starting a podcast right now, uh, reach out to the people that you think are unattainable. There's never going to be a window like there is. They're just people who are sitting at home and are scared and don't have work and are looking for someone to connect with like anybody else. That's during the lockdown. That's when Cal Fussman spent an hour and a half with me. Um, That's when, which was like, one of my favorite conversations I've ever had with any human ever. Um, you know, I got uh, Dan Cockrell, the former VP of the, uh, the former vice president of the Magic Kingdom. You know, we're a huge Disney, you know, ridiculous family. It's the only reason we had a kid to justify the Disney obsession. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, this is getting silly. You know, um, you know, he came on and spent an hour and just talked about Disney and talked about being at the Magic Kingdom and running things there. You know, the amount of people that you could just get on the phone or chat with during that really brief window that has closed, it's a new world now, Yeah, um, was amazing. Yeah. What, what else yeah. did you see come up with, with this, the timing? Yeah. This, this comes up um, with students who are trying to reach people who, like you said, like really hard to get time on their calendar. Another time individually that people are a lot more flexible with their time is when they are at a conference or an event. Yes. And yes. so if you, well, what, most people don't do before going to an event is reach out, like find out who's going to be at the event. Harder to get on the calendar with speakers, but you still can find out who else is going to be at the event and then just set up a few coffee chats. And those people are, they, they just have so much more time than when they're at their regular work. Um, Another thing I do, by the way, 
when people are reaching out to me, I'm not at all famous, but I still get lots of people asking for consults and conversations and things like that way more than I have time for. And I schedule those when I have a long drive. So I'm driving to and from New York today and tomorrow. And tomorrow I'm going to have a conversation with a small group of people from National Geographic and the World Bank. They're in the sustainability group. And I would love to talk with them. Um, But it's much, much easier when it's during a time that I just have time. So think about that from your own perspective, freeing up your own bandwidth, as well as when you're reaching out to other people. When is basically we're talking about when is time when is time cheap and when is time expensive? And speaking of time being cheap and expensive, one of the things that I've found is really useful. And and this is one of those things that when you say it, it sounds obvious, but it's only obvious once you realize it. Like there's so many things that are only obvious once somebody shows it to you. Is I have and I've experienced this recently with uh with podcast guests where I'm trying especially the the people like you're saying, famous people with crazy schedules. You reach out and they're very sweet in turning you down, right? They say, I just, I don't have time. I'm in the middle of this project. I'm teaching this course right now. I'm on a tour or whatever. Um, what I've found is I used to years ago, I would just go, okay, thanks so much and move on. And now I come back with, you know, totally, totally understand that. When would be a time that you'd be open to this? Thank you so much for sharing that. And, yes. and it's, it's fascinating. Like nine out of 10 times, people will tell you, they'll go, well, you know, like, January, maybe the middle of January, I have a lapse in my thing. I'd be more open to it then. And it's not a commitment, but it does mean that in January, I have it in my calendar as a scheduled follow up to touch base and say, hey, by the way, hope everything went well on that tour. Hope things have settled down. You mentioned this would be a better time. Is it still a better time? You know, and and that's letting people tell you how to influence them. Yes. Oh, my God. It's amazing how much people will tell you how to influence them and also how willing they are to do the thing that they said that they might be willing to do because you have such a higher hit rate with that process than you would if you just reached out for the first time in January. Yes. Right. Those are completely different conversations where and and it's also likely that they don't actually have extra bandwidth in the future because they're successful and we're all overcommitted and, you know, we fill up our plate. It's not like we have this chill out January where we're drinking Mai Tais and we're like, oh, yeah, whoever calls. Sure. <laughs> But we feel, and this is something that Robert Cialdini talks about in his very famous book called Influence, Mm -hmm. that it's written in the 1980s. It's so great. And this has become a Bible for people working in sales. It's been a bit co-opted by transactional sales, which isn't how he intended for it to be used. But this principle of commitment and consistency of walking the talk that when you've said, I'll, I should be more free in January, maybe check back with me then you feel this internal pressure to say yes to Brian yeah. when he calls you back in January. And I, I, I feel it myself, too, because I do the same thing. People reach out and they invite me to do something or they ask to pick my brain. And oh, it was becoming one of my least favorite expressions in the English language. Yeah. What should what should people ask? Let's give people a phrase. And I don't know what it is. But yeah. I feel when the people same say way. pick your brain, I always feel like first I'd like my brain unpicked. Thank you very much. And, you know, I just I it's it's a weird phrase. And, and or even yeah. even buy you a cup of coffee. That one has started to really bother me over the last few years because I can afford my own coffee and my time is oh, worth yeah. more than that cup of coffee. <laughs> like, which which it, it's not an it's not like a, I think I'm so yeah. interesting or so important thing. It's that cl- I I'm a professional and I'm in the field of of selling intellectual property, which means the thoughts that you're asking for from me are thoughts that people pay for and companies pay a lot for. Um, and I'm happy to have a chat with somebody for free that I think I can help. But the frame of let me buy you a cup of coffee, it's like it feels transactional. Um, So I'm not sure what the right way. Yeah. What the right way to pitch that is. What what about what about just could I ask your advice? See, how does that advice? That's I'm so that's perfect. I'm so I I don't know why that didn't come to me because I I literally wrote a blog post recently inspired by Seth, a mutual friend and mentor of of, of ours. Seth Godin talks about the difference between feedback and advice, and I've I've taken this and tried to I've dived deeper into it a few times in blog posts because I've found it's you get such a better response when you ask for advice than when you ask for feedback or when you um or when you ask even for for help really. There's something about the word advice that makes people 
excited to offer their wisdom. It makes them feel like someone who has something to share, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah there is this, um, this feel of respect and no entitlement. Yeah. Like if you're asking for advice, you're clearly not feeling entitled to that advice. And and clearly this is someone you respect who doesn't need to give you this thing that you need, but you'll be very appreciative if they do. Yeah. And it's, you know what, that's also a frame too. The, the framing of advice is putting them in a position of um, being uh, being a teacher with a student as opposed to someone who's trying to get something from them. Um, you know, s- students, we don't we don't think our our students are trying to like swindle us out of our time like there are students, um, you know, and 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 you you talked about that a little <laughs> bit, too, which is uh, this is so great. This the whole conversation became about framing, but I love it because it's so critical. You described a shift in how uh, teaching your class when you were encouraged to think of hosting your class, right? Instead of teaching your class. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this was this was the major paradigm shift for me as a teacher. When Danny Meyer, the restaurateur, came to Yale School of Management, and he's he had just published a book mm. called Setting the Table, which is lovely. And his suggestion to all of us in the room, being mostly MBA students, was you're all in the hospitality business. So for me as a teacher, I just asked myself, what would it look like if I were in the hospitality business? What would it look like if I were hosting my class instead of teaching my class? And this was a sea change from one semester to the next where I had been so stressed out, crazy, meticulous, micromanaging of students and TAs. And this class was very popular and successful and all of that people really wanted to take it. But I was grinding all of us, including me. I was just grinding us and had very rigid social norms and rules and expectations. And I didn't have time for anybody. I just focused all of my attention on the class, trying to shine as the star. And that was a really different, even though I th- I thought that I was serving and the best thing that I could do is shine in the spotlight, I, I really wasn't thinking of these people as humans and interacting with them as humans. They were employees and they were kind of the audience. Like I had, an, I had a TA who was sad working for me after she had taken the class and she enjoyed watching the Zoe show as a student. But then working for me as a TA, she was saying, I'm just not, you're just not inspiring me wow. to do a good job. And I felt like, like, listen, it's not my job to inspire you to do a good job. <laughs> like you're my employee and you're, the whole your job is called to work self-help. for me. Go read one. the work yeah. Yeah. that I give you. Yeah. But um, but then after making this shift where I just relaxed mm. for all of us, I relaxed my expectations for my TAs, for the students, yeah. and for myself. And the TAs and I come in early. We're there when students show up. We learn everybody's names as quickly as we can, which have a lot of students and it takes forever. But we we greet people when they come in and we just ask it, we make small talk with them, and my expectations for the students are very little. Like, I have to give them grades, but I don't count attendance anymore. If somebody comes in late, I'm just happy that they're there. You know, I smile and I welcome them, and there's no judgment. Like, if you're at a party, if you're a party guest, you can you know, spill a glass of wine, right? Like, you know, if you're the catering staff, you don't have to do everything perfectly. You're dude, like, when we make mistakes, we just laugh at them and we forgive each other. So when I switched to having, this was during the pandemic, I switched to, we're not even taking attendance anymore. And I still have every class, even virtual, 90% yeah. of people showing up and lots and lots of students showing up every single class, every single day on time to be there because they want to be there. As a teacher, that's an incredible feeling. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that 
reframe. And it, it's something that uh, happened for me early-ish in my magic career when I was struggling to get the responses I wanted out of my stage show. I wasn't getting the applause or as 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 heavy as I wanted it. They weren't laughing as hard as I wanted them to. I just wasn't getting what I wanted. And a veteran magician took me aside after a show and he said, the problem is you're trying to get something from the audience. He goes, listen to your language. You're describing the problem as I'm trying to get applause. I'm trying to get laughter. He said, what if instead you showed up to give them an experience? And that's all. That no expectation of what they do with that, but you show up to give them the sense of wonder, to give them a joyous experience, to give them a break from their stress and anxiety, right? And as soon as I started just going, what's in it for them? Right. What could they what could I what gift could I give them right now? And then they can do with it whatever they want. You know, um, yeah, it totally changed. That's so beautiful that it's it's beautiful. And it makes me think about what we have going on now with this great resignation where even before this, if you ask people why they quit their jobs, 50 percent of them said they quit because of a bad boss. Yeah. And when McKinsey, who should know a lot about what it takes to be a good boss, has done studies of managers, they find 90% of managers don't exhibit the qualities of good leadership. Mm. So most of us, most of us have bad bosses and most of us are bad bosses. Mm. So I, I tell people now the ways in which I am a bad boss and what we need to do to mitigate it. And I, and I also teach students and people who take my workshops how to manage their own relationship with their boss. But if we just start with the idea that leadership is so freaking hard, Mm -hmm. it's not something people are naturally good at. It's something people have very little training in. And if we can come to any leadership role we have as a service role, just like you were talking about, like, what can I give here and how can I serve the people who supposedly work for me? It's a, a game changer. This year I had a, a TA, I have four TAs at the same time. And one of my TAs wasn't, wasn't able to keep up with the work that I needed TAs to be doing. And in the past, I would have asked other people to cover or helped cover myself and, you know, let this person know, all right, we're going to do what we can and then get back in the saddle. We, we all need to be firing on all cylinders. And what I did this year was I gave all four of my TAs a week off so that this TA could have a chance to catch up with her work. And I wasn't going to be expecting more from the other people and then grinding them hard. And and I said, like, this is the best thing I can do for you. Equality for everyone. Is that going to work? Is that going to be enough? And then, of course, everybody steps up. And, um, and we had a great esprit de corps, very high engagement. That's- so I, I try to model inclusive leadership and i feel like that is one of the biggest gifts i give my students and my and my tas and people who work for me it's awesome i and such a really important point you were talking about the great resignation is it's this been true for years but i think we're only just now with the great resignation seeing the the effects of it um which which is that the number one reason as you said uh, that people quit is is a is is a bad boss and 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 more to the point when you drill down on what's happening there the number one pre one nah. The number one reason people leave their jobs is they don't feel valued or acknowledged for their hard work. And we know from the studies that people will actually take lower pay, not significantly lower, but lower pay, less benefits if they feel valued and acknowledged at the company. Um, my wife has done it. I've watched her go from a job that paid more to a job that paid less and be much, much happier. I know lots of friends that have done that. People quit the corporate world and go into consulting for themselves and make less money and are much happier. It's it it's 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 everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I've been asking for a while in some of the workshops that I teach when we talk about bad bosses. I'll ask people to write down, okay, who's your worst boss? And what were three (laughs) qualities of that worst boss that made them such a bad boss? And then we put all these qualities up on the board and they fall generally into two categories. It's incompetence and disrespect. And disrespect is the biggest. And, And the great news about that, I teach this in leadership workshops. The great news about it is that if we 
can just focus on how do I show respect and, and, and respect the people who work for me, we have gone a long ways toward yeah. being a good boss. It's awesome. I, I want to pull this into the end here. Uh, and let's start with this question. What is the biggest misconception people have about influence? The, there's so many big ones, so I'm pausing. But the biggest misconception probably that people have about influence in terms of what hurts us the most and keeps us from becoming as influential as we could be is that we think that people will dislike us or judge us as being greedy if we ask for a lot. Mm. And it's not how much we ask for that people are judging us about. It's how we ask. And so coming back to respect and empathy, you can ask for so, so much and probably far more than you're asking for if you focus on showing warmth and respect. And the other person may not say yes, but there's no reason for them to not like you or to judge you or not respect you. This ties perfectly back into the example of how do you pick somebody's brain? How do you do it in a different way? The perfect example here, and it's, it's fantastic, this just tied back in, is when somebody asks to pick my brain, if they ask to pick my brain for even 10 minutes, I have an aversion to that. And we talked about why. But when someone says, I'd like to invite you on my podcast to talk about your work and to share what you've learned about human connection and the work that you do, I'll give them an hour of my time. I'll go over. I'll give them an hour and a half, two hours. We'll keep talking. I'll keep them on and they got to go. You know, I, I'm because the the they can ask for a ton, an hour or two hours of my time. If it's framed in a way of that to me is respectful and 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 it's shown because it's respectful to say you are somebody that has something to offer my listeners or the world or my industry that you've learned and we want to learn from your experience you know that's such a different frame than i'm trying to get ahead in my career can you teach me what you know for free over a cup of coffee right it's such a different frame yeah yeah absolutely and entitlement is probably the least influential frame there is. So when anybody asks for something that has a little feeling of entitlement, all of us cringe. Yeah. And we definitely want to say no, no matter what that thing is that they're asking for. Yeah. So before I ask you the last question, where should people find you? And we'll have all the links in the show notes. People can pre-order the book on Amazon. That link will be down there. It's uh, Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. By the way, I am so happy that this ended up being the title and not the other one that stuck around for like three or four years. Um, <laughs> great <too>. title. <laughs> so much better. Um, Thank you. Where should people find you and connect with you? So the book you can find anywhere that's selling books. The uh, lots of information about Zoe you can find at zoechance.com and I would love it if you would connect with me on LinkedIn just feel free to connect even though there's a follow button <laughs> connect with me and you can find me on Twitter if you like and lots of other places and I'll be happy to promote your show as well Brian oh, thank you that's very kind so to pull this in then the most of my listeners are early 20s to mid 30s they're young professionals looking to build their career in an increasingly um, difficult world, to build a sustainable career in an increasingly uh, changing world. What is the one, what's like the best reason somebody in that stage of their career would want to purchase this book, would learn from this book? What are they going to get most out of it? The group of people that you just described is exactly the group of people that I've been working with and teaching for the past decade. So people who come to MBA programs have quit a job. They're figuring out what comes next. They're ambitious. They're smart. They have a lot of opportunities and helping, helping people in their twenties and thirties, figuring out their job transitions to successfully make that transition to what comes next is exactly what I do. And one specific, specific thing, if you are in the process of getting a new job that you might really find useful is the chapter on negotiations. It's on creative negotiations. And I mention a lot of different things about negotiating a new job or negotiating a raise or a promotion in your current job. Great. On that note, what 
what about negotiating is I think people get really nervous about negotiating. Uh, they get really freaked out about it. And far too few people or far too many people don't negotiate at all. I've watched this happen over and over again. So is there like one really practical, quick takeaway about negotiating that someone could just put into practice like right away? Yes. So the most important thing is to negotiate and that people are not going to dislike you for negotiating, which is definitely true. But what you already said, you mentioned earlier, asking people how to influence them. People rarely realize that you can ask in a job negotiation, you can ask advice from the recruiter. You can ask advice from people at that company who you hit it off with and the interview process. And you can even ask advice from whoever it is negotiating with you. And you can just ask, so what would it take for me to get something more along the lines of whatever it is that you're looking for? Or what is there anything that I'm not asking for? What are other people negotiating for? And when you are asking advice, women, please ask men. And men also ask men. Women tend to ask advice from women. And because of the gender pay gap and all of these kinds of things, we were selling ourselves short um, by setting our targets as low as other women do. That's great. And by the way, that little you slipped in there, the magic question, what would it take? That's a whole other conversation and a really good reason for somebody to read this book. And I didn't bring it up only because you and I talked about it last time you were on the podcast. And it's really worth listening to because that story ended up as one of the critical stories in the book uh, about what yep, would it take. It's in the negotiations chapter. And it's in the negotiations yeah. chapter. And I have used that, the magic question, what would it take? Like, hundreds of times since then. It is a magic question. It's ridiculous how well it works. It feels unfair how well it works. And it works to get everybody the best possible outcome. Yeah, it works because it feels good on both sides. People are happy to have that conversation. So that's awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, Zoe, uh, we could talk for like five hours about this stuff, but I think we're going to call it here. I'm so excited for Influences Your Superpower. And you narrated the audiobook, right? Yes, it was a blast. I loved it. That's so much fun. I can't wait to listen to the audiobook version and some other private time. I'll have to ask you about your experience going into a real studio and recording with a producer. It must have been a it must have been a riot. It, it was one of the coolest things I've done in a while. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I love I love asking and hearing your advice and having these conversations about influence anytime we get to. It's so much fun for me. So lots of love and gratitude. 